Sunstrom Recruitment are the leaders in health and safety recruitment. If you're considering a career change or need to discuss your organisation's hiring, reach out to the team today. We were awarded Recruitment Agency of the Year in Health and Safety in 2023 and are a proud sponsor of Health and Safety Conversations. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the marvelous Murray Ritchie. Murray, how are you? I'm great, Tom. How are you? Oh, excellent. It's great being up at this time in the morning. I think it's a, a cool seven degrees Celsius in Perth at the moment. What's the weather like over there? Well, it's, we're at 3.30 in the afternoon, and I think it's sitting at about 35 celsius but you know we're we're heading into our summer in mexico and you're heading into your winter so yeah Ex <laughs> explains why i'm wearing a vest and flannelette shirt and you're perhaps not i'm i definitely am not no okay normally maria i start saying uh, tell me about to the guests i say ask them to tell me about their journey into safety but you've had a much more interesting life than just your journey into safety so can you tell us a little bit about your life and some of the challenges you, you faced right from a very young age? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think all of it was a journey into safety. I mean, growing up dyslexic, which is in the 70s, they had a word for dyslexic people in school and we were called slow learners. Mm. Uh, so, you know, school wasn't a great experience for me. And so I, I, I think in hindsight, that really started me trying to create safe spaces for me to be in. Um, I didn't do badly in school, but I didn't do great, especially as I got into the middle school years because of my dyslexic condition and it, because it basically was undiagnosed and for many years up until I, I got to uni later in life. So it, I think all of it, starting off with, with the, the learning disability in middle school, I dropped out of school after my ninth year. So even before hitting high school, and the Canadian standard of a high school would start in the 10th year. And I dropped out, and, and I had a couple of choices at that time. And, and I knew if I dropped out, the parents weren't, wouldn't sit well with me. So I had to find a place to be other than <laughs> where they were. And not that they told me that, but I just sort of assumed that, that that would be the way it is. So my two choices was the one thing I was very good at school was music. And uh, so one of my choices was to be a musician. But of course, at the age of 15, it's pretty hard to play in the clubs in Canada, where, in my, where I grew up in Manitoba, the Vincent Agency 18. So, so I, I ventured off and, and, and got myself a fake ID. I actually got it on the back classified section of a Rolling Stone magazine. 
And I ordered this thing in the mail and it came from Las Vegas. And all I had to do was go to the typing lab at school and type in my name and choose birth date and find somebody who might sign it for me that would look, you know, rather grown up and official. And, and that really was so that I could find musicians and play in, in clubs. Uh, but as fate would have it, I had a, a school friend whose older brother one morning was heading into the big city on the bus. They were a military family. His father was in the Air Force, and he was heading off to join the Air Force, the Navy. As all good prairie people in Canada do, somehow the Navy's full of farmers and, and uh, the Army's full of sailors. I never could figure that out, that dynamic. I don't know if it's, if it's special to Canada or it's the same in Australia, but yeah, so he was heading in and I was on my way to school on a, on a beautiful spring day. And he convinced me that perhaps if I went with him to the city, I would be able to try out my fake ID after he had gone through the steps of enrolling in the Navy and we would hit a pub and, and we'd see just how, how, how well it would work. And as fate would have it, while I was sitting waiting for him, one of the recruiters looked at me and said, you're next. And uh, cocky as I was, I thought, well, let's see if this thing really does work. So the irony there is it not only did it work, but I was off within three weeks. I was off to basic training on the East Coast of Canada. Well, my friend, who was actually of legal age, was made to wait for his <laughs> turn to go into basic. So I ended up in there first. And so, yeah, it sort of started off my, I had had summer jobs and after school jobs, you know, pre previous to that, but it sort of set, set the tone for my my career as a, as an infantryman in the, in the Canadian, British, British Canadian Light Infantry. And uh, it was short-lived. I was young and, and, and very immature, of course. Yeah, I was just turned 16 when I left for boot camp, but it sort of set the stage as to what I would be. And I, and I think it also subconsciously planted some seeds around safety. This military is very disciplined. In that time, safety was, and to some extent still is, unfortunately, very disciplined. But it, it, it really instilled in me a, a sort of a survival sense, I guess. And even though I was young and invincible, I still it instilled a, a sense of vulnerability. And I think I carried through my work in life after that. Yeah. And how did the, the end of your military career end? Oh, come to come well, up I, yeah well i you know it's like most things in my life at that time after a few years I, I i decided that it wasn't for me so i i left and decided i would go up to the west coast and i had a friend who also had joined the military in the army a different friend a childhood friend and he was stationed in the on the west coast vancouver island and i was stationed in winnipeg so the irony for me in this sort of a you know <laughs> day late the dollar short, but I joined the military to get away and they stationed me back to Winnipeg. So uh, they sent me back home. I mean, not home. They, they had no idea that I was too young. So one day I just uh, thought, you know, enough of this and I'm going to head out to the West Coast. So I did. And again, ironically, I didn't have a place to stay. So I stayed in the military barracks because I had a military ID. I could get in and I find a, a room that had an empty bunk and then just sort of gave me a place to eat and be. And, and then over a, a bit of time there, I, it was time to sort of face the piper and say, okay, I, I you know, I, I left. I didn't ask permission to leave and here I am. And I think fortunately, because they were a bit embarrassed that they were looking for me, but they didn't think to look there. They knew I was on the West Coast. They didn't think to look in their, in their backyard. So they, they basically agreed with me that perhaps the military life wasn't quite for me. And so I was discharged uh, and carried on. Went back, actually, ironically, and wound up back in the prairies again, back in Manitoba. And that's where I began. I got a job on the local ambulance in my small town that I lived in, just outside of Winnipeg. I got a, a, a job in the ambulance. I was always intrigued with the medical side of the Army and the medic side of combat. And, and, you know, I thought maybe being an ambulance guy, in those days we didn't have paramedics in, in, in Canada, really. There was no, no place you could go and study to be a paramedic. So I went to work on my, my hometown ambulance, which took me to the Winnipeg Ambulance Service for a few years. And what's, what's ironic is this whole time I, I was still operating on my military ID. So my driver's license, everything that I had gathered to base my life while I was in the military had my wrong birth date. 
had my right name. And also, ironically, I, I used my social insurance number, which is the tax identifier in Canada that you get from the age of about 13. And I had one because I was near cadets. I was in sea cadets for a time and, and needed one to be there. So ironically, the Revenue Canada didn't put that together either when I was filing my taxes every year in the military. that I had two birthdays, but probably just as well for me. And, and that led to that led to me, the Winnipeg Ambulance led to me wanting more, wanting more than just to be an emergency medical attendant, if you will, or ambulance attendant. So at that time, we, they would just started a paramedic school in Alberta, in Edmonton, at the Northern Institute of Technology. And they had just started a two-year program there, but it was closed at that time to people that were working in Alberta. And I think primarily it was people working in Edmonton were the first choice to be trained. So they weren't open for students. So three hours up the road from where I was in Winnipeg was Grand Forks, North Dakota. So I attended there. And I went to United Hospital, which was attached to the University of North Dakota, and did my, my advanced life support paramedic training. And, and then became American nationally registered as a parent. Mm. Yeah. So that sort of was the end of the army in the beginning <laughs> of, of that side. Yeah. yeah. Or, and your paramedic studies took you far afield? It, well, it did. Yeah. Because when I graduated, I interned in Phoenix for my national registry, had to do a six month internship. So I went to Arizona to do that. And, and then when that was completed, I, I was allowed to do that on my student visa. And when that was completed, I then had to apply for a green card to stay in the United States and work. And it was the Ronald Reagan era. And Ronald Reagan decided there was too many immigrants in the U.S. And so he, he pulled the plug. And unfortunately, paramedics in, the, in the, those years were not considered essential as far as needed occupations. It wasn't in their census. I had three companies in Phoenix wanting me to work, Phoenix Fire Department and two private ambulance services that both had offered me jobs, full-time jobs. Now, keep in mind, too, at this time, I had a, a wife and two children. My second son was born while I was in university. So I also had that happen and, and to think about feeding a family. But because the census didn't include paramedics, I came back to Canada and was told that they had paramedics in British Columbia. So I thought, well, I'll go out there and I'll, I'll see if I can get work out there. So I, we moved back to BC, gone when I, when I left the Army, and only to discover that their paramedics were first aid attendants that they called paramedics. They had a couple of advanced life support paramedics, I think, in the cities, but thing in the countryside a university program as a paramedic and, and achieving advanced life support status, I didn't think that would work too well. So that took me to the Middle East. because then I saw an, an advert for paramedics wanted in, in the Middle East in Saudi Arabia. And that took me there to where I went to work for the National Guard Hospital in Riyadh. And, and that was a great experience because there we didn't do pre-hospital care. The paramedics there were pretty much assigned to the trauma bay as trauma nurses. So we worked alongside the physicians and trauma nurses. And we were sort of, we were worked primarily like physicians, assistants, or nurse practitioners. Uh, because of the volumes that we had where we were, we had a lot of road trauma. So it was a great learning experience. It was a fantastic way to learn. I, I had the pleasure of working with some very good emergency room physicians, most of them from Canada, who were very eager to us, you know, up above and beyond what we already had, and, and they needed help. And, and that sort of set that standard of overseas work. And when I left Saudi to come back to Canada, the Gulf War had started just after I left the first Gulf War. And of course, the, the, oil, the oil wells in Kuwait were set ablaze. And I had a friend who was working for a safety boss, the Canadian firefighting team that was going. And he said, hey, you, you've got Middle Eastern experience and you speak Arabic. And so what do you think? You want to come over with us and we're going to need some paramedics. And uh, do you want to come and, and come to Kuwait? And of course, being still rather young and curious, I thought, boy, that sounds like fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> so off I went into industry. And that, that brought me into industry was was that and the, and at the same time while i was there 
Canadian team, Safety Boss, they were the only firefighting team that had hydrogen sulfide breathing equipment, DH2S equipment. So, so primarily we got most of the, the southern wells along the Saudi border and some, some closer to the Iraq border that were sour. And with that breathing equipment, I had the opportunity to train with one of their H2S techs to also do double duty as a, as a breathing technician or H2S technician, which is great experience. And that in turn led me to work overseas in oil and gas. Mm. And so that brought me into the oil and gas industry. And it was in the oil and gas industry where I was working offshore first as a paramedic slash H2S technician. So our job, this is, this is typical industry thinking. It's like, let's have the one guy who's going to save the guy's life if he, if he gets knocked down by H2S. And let's, let's make him be the guy that goes into the H2S alarms and does the Drager tubes and pulls, pulls the gas <laughs> tubes. He calls you all clear. But it took us a bit of time to realize that was probably a flawed combination of duties. <laughs> but nonetheless, it, 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 was, it was good experience. I was on a jack-up rig in the Persian Gulf. And through that, I, I was working for a company out of Lafayette, Louisiana. And they eventually promoted me into the management position in Doha, in mm-hmm. Qatar. And one day I was sitting in my office and the, when I had been offshore, I was on a cliffs drilling rig and their offshore installation manager in those days, we just called them tool pushers because it was a small jack-up rig. When I got promoted to, to the beach, he also had got promoted through cliffs to be their country manager. And they had two rigs at the time. And one day he came into my office and I was responsible for the medics and HUS techs on their rigs. And uh, he came into my office one day and he said, the, the client now says we have to have a safety officer on all the rigs offshore. And I said, interesting. He said, would you like a job? And I said, what does the safety officer do? And he said, I don't. <laughs> and I said, so what's the pay? <laughs> and he told me, and he basically was doubling my salary. So I thought for a minute and I said, okay, you don't have a job description for me. You don't know what it is I'm supposed to be doing, but you're going to pay me double to do it. And he said, yeah, pretty much. So I, you know, like all safety guys, I'm your man. (laughs) So that brought me into the safety world. That's where my career started. And ironically, he sent me back to the rig that I had been the medic H2S tech on. So I knew the rig, I knew the crew. Uh, and it was rather easy for me to walk around telling them to put their safety glasses on and their arc hats on because I knew them all. So I, I was not that intimidated. And, you know, the, the early days of safety offshore, I mean, that's what we did. We spent our time policing people. You know, one of my favorite posters is the picture of the person in the high-vis vest holding the clipboard and the caption says, I don't know how to do your job, but my book says you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and and that, that was sort of my early career. It, it, it's sort of a... Whenever I think of safety officers, because that's the term they used, it, 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 that, that's what I think of. Not to yeah. take away from those that are safety officers, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that brought me into safety. And education with, with, with safety. You, you'd educated yourself through the ambulance and, and become an advanced, advanced technician there, advanced practitioner there. What made you start to go down the, the line of upskilling yourself and giving yourself greater knowledge and safety? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I was fortunate when I entered safety with Cliffs Drilling that I was with a very good company and a very supportive company, small company. And then over the time, we kept getting swallowed up by mergers. We went through a, through a year and a half period of time. I went from Cliffs Drilling to RMB Falcon which was the result of Redium Bates and Falcon drilling merging. And within a few months of, of that happening, we then merged with Transocean Setco4X, which was the result of Transocean and Setco4X merging. So we went through a very quick change in operational climate, if you will, or operational, uh, I, 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 I'm very cautious not to use the word safety culture because I work in multicultural environments and safety is not a culture. We can talk about that later. And it's in <laughs> but uh, so uh, I, uh, when, when Transocean, as uh, Setco Forax, took over reading and dates, or RB Falcon, pardon me, 
they did something spectacular. I thought they 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 had they had a, a guy, Lewis Senior, who was on staff. He was their international HSE manager, and he was tasked with bringing these four companies together and creating one policy manual out of four. Now you, you have to remember when I joined Reading and Bates or RMB Falcon. They were still battling between the Reading and Bates and the Falcon drilling guys. They were still, the Falcon drilling people were not happy that they were taken over by this new organization. When I went to join them, I was I was actually joined a drill ship for the first time. And I joined it in Galveston, Texas. And then we sailed it to Ekaia, Brazil, to drill offshore in Brazil. And uh, it was unique in that none of the crew were American. Mm. And so I, I managed to get on this vessel that had mostly Australian, Scottish, and Canadian crew. And it was my first time really dealing with marine crews, so professional mariners. Mm. Now you're on a ship. So you have everything that you had on the jacket. You have the offshore installation manager, drillers, tool pushers. So, but you also have a captain and a mate and an engineer and, a, you know, and, and, it intrigued me the difference in the in the professional cultures. I will use culture when it comes to a professional culture because it is a subculture. Professional cultures is a subculture. The, the difference between and, and the way these, these two interacted intrigued me. And I found it much easier to, to do what I had to do from a safety standpoint with the mariners because they seemed to have a more disciplined sense of safety and of course in those days not unlike most places today safety management systems are made up of rules and regulations and policies and procedures and they work well in principled ethical climates hmm. why norway succeeds so well with their safety but they don't work so well in egoist climates like like north america or australia hmm. or the uk hmm. so People that come out of those ethical climates, like yourself and myself, unless they had military experience, or in this case, mariner experience. So they were, these mariners were sub, you know, they, they understood that. They understood that. Whereas the drillers and the tool pushers, not to take away from them, they're all very good at what they do and they work very hard, but they came from a very different kind of subculture professionally. They came from the getter done. Mm. So it was an interesting dynamic and that, that led me to to really start thinking about what makes people tick. Why why does one person choose this while another person chooses that? And so I took that coupled with coupled with my desire to leave the drilling contractor world and try to get a job with the major oil companies. Mm-hmm. A because they they paid a lot better, and B that they generally worked onshore. They generally had a nine to five job with a pint of beer waiting for them at the end of every day, as opposed to being offshore where you're just always there. And so, so I I started looking around at our clients. We we were drilling for Petrobras in Brazil, and then we went over and drilled with, did some drilling with Chevron, we did some drilling with P, different clients. And my counterparts with those clients, I, I would always sort of get to know them and find out, you know, why are you here and I'm there? And one of the things I kept seeing was that most of these guys had advanced, and, and women, they just got to with a few, a few women, but most of them had advanced degrees. Yeah. Quite a few of them were engineers, some had, some were geologists, but they all came to safety from a, from a, from a postgraduate standpoint. Yeah. And so that, just to back up a bit, I, I ended up leaving Transocean Psychophorax when they became Transocean, when they dropped the Central Forex. And I went to work for a spin-off company called Toddco, which took over their shallow water division. And that really got me going because we were drilling in Angola, West Africa. And when I arrived on the rig, they called it Toddco, Toddco 187, I think it was called. Toddco 185. The Toddco 185, I stepped off the helicopter and I thought, boy, this sure looks familiar, right? This rig looks really familiar. And then I said, your office is over there. And I went into the office and it was actually a clinic and a small clinic. And I looked at all the labels on the cupboards and I went, I think I put those labels there. (laughs) The Todco 185 was actually the Cliffs LaSalle that I started on. (laughs) It's my full circle. 
But now we were chilling and, and it was a month on month off schedule and I had time. So I started exploring, knowing that I wanted to go work in the big leagues, so to speak, or with the, with the majors and, and do a little more. I started looking for places to go to uni and, and get a master's degree. And I landed in the UK with the University of Greenwich, mostly because there was one university in, in Australia, I believe was on the list, and a couple in the UK. There was nothing in Canada and the States. And the University of Greenwich went out only because it fit my work schedule. Mm. I was working in Angola, so the company allowed me to fly home through the UK on my days off. They would fly me to London and I could go and attend it meeting when I had to. And it, it just fit their schedule fit better. So, uh, yeah, so I ended up starting to work on my master's degree. And about that same time, just you know, putting that on my resume, you know, master's degree in progress, I was, I was hired on by Chevron as a, as a consultant and in West Africa still. But yeah, so it, it served me well being overseas to do that. It was a challenge. Again, my dyslexia didn't go away. So, you know, having to write a dissertation and having to, having to, you know, write essays, do assignments still took me longer than the average person. You know, one of the things about being dyslexic is you can read. You just have to read something four or five times sometimes mm. to get it in the right order. And uh, but uh, you know, the, being able to do a part of part of the degree remote helped because I I could do it on my time for the most part, and I I was able to, to and I had a lot of time being offshore. You have a lot of downtime with nowhere to go. So I would, that, that served well. And, and I ended up getting my master of science degree in occupational health and safety. And, and that's where I started my journey looking at safety culture. In fact, my, my dissertation research project was examining national cultures and at-risk behaviors and personality traits and how the three of them related to perception of safety or risk. And, and I went in totally thinking, I'm gonna crack this nut called safety culture. And I'm going to be famous and I'm going to, and much to my surprise, I was able to put my bias aside and realize, oh, what this is telling me is there is no safety culture. <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree. But nonetheless, it, it, it got me to, uh, it got me to that point and, and, and allowed me to do a lot of other things that I wouldn't have been able to do around health and safety. And, and being now armed with a master's degree, it's funny because when you get a master's degree, you become less employable. This is what I discovered. You know, if you don't have a degree, if you have a, some kind of designation like a CMIOSH, CRSP, or CSP, or you're pretty employable. But as soon as you get a master's degree, people make the assumption that you you don't have any experience working. So <laughs> you're sort of babbling that. And, and I think anybody who's working in the field now and, and is thinking about going back to school, I highly recommend it because I think for those of us that do have previous experience prior to going into the academic side, bring a whole lot of, of other experiences that, that help along the way, I think, and, and, and kind of help you cut through the, cut through the, ide- the ideologies, so to speak, and you go, okay, how would this look on the Dr. 185? How would this look on, you know, the Peregrine 3 or the Deepwater Horizon or wherever you happen to be working? Yeah, yeah. Safety culture. It seems to be one of those things that still prevails everywhere you go. This uh, lovely thing. And, and, you know, everyone has their own belief, their own version of it. For you, it's it's just literally a myth. Is that correct? Well, I don't think it's I don't think the myth is the right is the right word. I think safety culture is a very nicely packaged catchphrase that safety professionals like to use to explain away their failures. <laughs> My experience, and I, I used to be a huge champion of safety culture. I used to be on that bandwagon. Oh, they just have, you know, we just got to work on their safety culture. If you think about it, a safety culture is just by definition, it, it, it fits nicely into all the other bad habits we have, like, like BBS. It fits into mm-hmm. anything that we just look at the worker and say, there's the problem. We've got to fix that. Yeah. And so now we call it a culture. And so, you know, when I did my dissertation, I, I used the Gert Hofstede's culture model as part of my questionnaire 
when I asked him permission to do so. And, and I used an offshore drilling company, one of the larger ones that allowed me access to their, to their folks in, in different demographics, different job titles where I could do these surveys. And when I asked Gerd Hofstede Sr., who's the grandfather of culture, in my opinion, if I could use his model and his, his technique, he granted me per- permission and basically said, I wish you luck, but I got to tell you, I think you're just an enthusiastic amateur. <laughs> you will not <laughs> find culture safely. So it didn't deter me. I was going to prove him wrong, but I still use his, his basic, basic level layers of what culture is, the national culture, any culture. And, and the four, four big things are the shared, shared symbols, shared heroes, shared rituals, and shared values. This is, and I believe that to be culture. I, I believe I, I grew up in a multicultural town in Canada. I, I grew up in, in a country that has, for centuries now, tried to suppress certain cultures and, and force their rituals and their beliefs and heroes on other people. And, and what I see with safety cultures as a professional, I think the biggest, the only cultural impact that negatively impacts safety performance is the subculture of the safety profession. Mm. Because we continue to go down this road of we have to look for the worker. We have to correct the worker's behavior. We have to correct what they do. It's all about them. And it's not. It's all about what situations we put them in. They mm. make choices based, they make workers make choices based on the choices available for them to make. And as a worker, don't tell me what I value. Don't tell me who my heroes are. Don't tell me who, I, I, you know, people choose their own mentors. You can't just say, hey, Murray, this is Tom. Tom will be your mentor. No, Murray will decide if Tom's his mentor. Yeah. Right? And so I, I started coining the phrase, and I don't like to use it much because I have a lot of, have a lot of Indigenous friends and family, and uh, I've started coining the phrase of safety colonization. Because really, what we do as a profession is try and tell workers what it is that they have to value. And, and, and the biggest problem with that is we don't allow them the opportunity or the, the environment to do it in. So I will tell you, hey, Tom, you have to stop work. Mm-hmm. If you see an unsafe act, you have to stop it. But then mm-hmm. I put you in this environment where you can't do that. It's yeah. career limiting. You're not going to tell your boss to stop. You, you just can't. Even as a safety, even as a safety professional, you must report all injuries. One of the reasons that the, the fellow that hired me to work at Cliffs when he was a tool pusher on, on the on the Cliffs LaSalle, one of the reasons he wanted me to come work for him as a safety guy is because when I was the medic on that rig working as a contractor for a different company, I could sew people up. Mm-hmm. And have their stitches out before crew change so the client never knew they had a medical treatment case. Uh, and as a safety professional, if I wanted to work, that's what I did. And that hasn't changed much, Tom. Especially in some industries, it's getting better in others. And I think within the safety industry itself, we're getting a little better, maybe a bit more teeth. But you look at these young construction safety officers, and you look at the constraint of the construction industry as a whole, and I, I marvel at it. I marvel at what I'm reading and construction safety organizations saying, oh, we're going to invest money in, in dropped objects is the new thing. Well, no, dropped objects is 1990. This is 2020. Why are we still talking? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Confined spaces, 1980. Why are we still talking about that? 
And I think we'll talk about it because as a profession, the safety profession, I think a lot of the times we're too busy trying to keep our jobs and keep our, keep safe face. Mm. Develop a safety management system. Say develop, maybe I copy paste, it's more like it. Mm. I borrow here and there. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with lessons learned. And there's nothing wrong with learning from different places, bringing things from different places. But when I do that and it fails, I take it personal. As a safety professional, mm. I take that personal. And I know we have we have we have codes of ethics and we have all these things that we have to follow. But I'll tell you, some of the most unethical safety practitioners I've ever run across were some of the best qualified, had more letters behind their name than the alphabet. So, yeah, I I just see culture in, in my in, in 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 the book that I have coming out, the seven the seven bad habits of, of safety management. Safety culture is sort of the last chapter because I see as I was writing it, I started with plan do check act in this bad habit we have of calling that the Deming cycle. Edward Deming did not like that. Mm. He didn't say that. He, 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 he was actually quite often very vocal about people confusing what he said to the Japanese and in Japan. But it all, I think what it is, is that we, we take all of these great things in safety and we try and implement them into you know, into a square peg, round hole. We take all these square peg old ideas from the 1930s and the turn of the century and we try and, well, if we're going to do that, we must do this. If we're going to have a safety culture, we must plan to check out that. We must plan to have a culture and we must do rules and regulations that we can measure and we must check for compliance and then we must act by either rewarding that compliance mm-hmm. or, or reacting to the fact that people aren't complying. And then we yeah. start all over it. And that, that doesn't create a bad safety culture. That creates a bad work environment. Yeah, yeah. So that's my yeah. rant. No, 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 no. That, that, that's what you want. You want people with passion. I, I Just on the ability to stop work or cease work, it, it always seems to me it's a, a shifting of responsibility. We've provided the worker with an unsafe environment and then said, but if you feel unsafe, you can stop it. I don't know. Let's just not put the worker in that unsafe environment where they have to make that call, whether yeah, right. it will limit their career or not. You know, seriously, why are we doing that? Well, and it's, it's not even li- limiting their career. I mean, who wants to be that person? Yeah, exactly. You you turn up, especially a newer young worker, you turn up on a work site and you see all these guys merrily walking around doing unsafe things and you and they're getting her done and, and they're getting promoted and they're getting bonuses. Who, who wants to be the one to say, hang on a second, I don't think we should do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and then we set them up with this notion that they can, risk, they can rank risk. This, is, <laughs> this, one I, this one I always, I love the risk ranking. That's something um, I was, I was reading an article, I forget who wrote it, on the history of, you know, risk ranking. And it actually came out of gaming. It was the gaming industry that first looked at, okay, how much money can we make if what are the chances that somebody's going to lose and keep playing, mm. right? That's what we do with workers. Roll the dice. Chances are one in a thousand. We're not going to get hurt. I'm smarter. I'm, they, they got all these, all these biases that say I, I'm quicker and I'm smarter and I'm better. And, and what are the chances? I like to go wrong. <laughs> and then we and then we wonder why they get hurt and, and 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 then we give them these hierarchy of controls and i like that one for workers too right the hot boy you got me you must eliminate then you must engineer substitute then you must engineer then you must administration yes what we say to them is here's the administrative controls we have for you and there's your ppe yep and that's that's all that's the only thing they have control over is whether or not they wear the PPE, which is the last line of defense. We don't, I mean, you know, who's the first rust about that ever joined a, a, an offshore oil rig and said, hey, what if we put stairs on the outside of the steric and then we do away with the ladders? Well, no. Yeah, no. Now, now, fortunately, now new rigs do have stairs on the outside of the derrick to yeah. get up to the, to the crown and get up to the stabbing board. But, you know, it's not that, it's not that rust about who's, who's made to go up that ladder. 
all he's told is over there is your is your fall protection. Mm. Get up the ladder. And the fall protection may or may not be in good shape and you may or may not have the training to use it. So yeah, we we put workers in a in a in a weird place and we continue to, you know, there's so many different schools of thought. And and I like all of them. There's nothing in the bad habits in the seven bad habits book that isn't useful. Even our bad habits are useful if they're implemented in context. But we tend to throw out the good stuff and we tend to keep the easy stuff. Right? We, we like easy safety professionals. We like easy stuff. We like trips, slip strips and calls. Okay? Yeah. We like that. They're low impact and they're easy to fix. You know, we don't like the high impact stuff. No. Mm. Yeah. So tell me, as a safety profession, are we inherently lazy in looking for models and designs and sayings and things which just encapsulate? I don't want to say glib ideas, but you know, ideas which just don't cover the complexity of work. Yeah, I, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask if we're lazy because I'm the guy who took the job because the guy hiring me didn't know what the job entailed. <laughs> and I what a better job. It wasn't until I went to Chevron to work on a flare and relief modification fabrication construction major capital project in, in, in Angola, West Africa. It wasn't until I joined them that I realized I wasn't the laziest guy in the industry. <laughs> I mean, I met I met a, 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 a welding inspector who, who, who sat all day reading x-rays of welds. Good friend of mine from Louisiana. And I said, man, I think you might have me beat. You don't even have to go outside. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. I got one guy better. And then he introduced me to my buddy, Ricky Bates. And he's a paint inspector. And he said, what do you do, Ricky? He says, I watch paint drop. So Rick won. We, the three of us decided, okay, it's Rick, Andrew, and then me, as far as who's the laziest guys on the project. And of course, I joke. I, you know, I think, I think what it is is that the, the safety profession is hard work. Hmm. It's hard work. I mean, I spent most of my career when I got into safety. People, I mean, you know, and, and people I would work with, you know, crew change day, they'd be at the airport. They'd go, come on, easy money, let's go. It's time to get on the plane. So they call you easy money, and they call you, that's okay you know they but i think being a safety practitioner is hard work because you're not the most popular person mm. and, and i think what makes it harder is this notion that you have to police i was hired as a safety officer with clips i hate that term your safety can't be policed it's like having a poverty officer you can't police away poverty you can't police <laughs> You can't police away mental illness, although we do in our society. We try to police all these things away. You can't police away addiction. We do that in Canada big time. And you can't police away unsafe acts and unsafe conditions. They can't be policed. They're created by people that have the power. Mm. And it's not us. Yeah. It's not yeah. us. So and I also think a lot of people, people come to safety from different places. I, I came into safety after zipping up body bags on oil rigs and sending people home. I came into safety as a, maybe I could stop. Other people come into safety from a different, different walk of life. Academics come into it from a different place. There's some very good academic research going on right now. It's, it's amazing. I love it. But we still suffer that implementation of the context. Mm. We still try and take this research. And generally, I think as safety practitioners, what we do is we take this research and we try and poo-poo it based on, we use for evidence, the stuff we've been doing for 100 years that doesn't work. So that's why the new stuff isn't going to work because it doesn't get this stuff. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the argument about renewable energy versus fossil fuels, right? You get these two sides. Well, you know, I like saying that the, the man who invented the combustion engine rode a horse to work, right? And, and uh, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb by candlelight. You know, we uh, we have this implementation gap with the research that's going on, and there's, as you know, and you've had several of them on your show. There's some really good, interesting research coming up. Yeah, and if we can only just bring it back to where it started, one one of the things when I was writing my book that I never realized until I I I, I always get into Heinrich, and I always knew about pyramids, and I always knew about this and that, and and people like to. To, to poo-poo Heinrich or throw him out or not throw him out. But I stumbled across 
in the 30s, his, his three elements of safety management systems. And most safety practitioners I know don't realize this. And, and I did. I just thought Heinrich pyramids, Heinrich triangles, Heinrich ratios of incidents and good, whether you agree with them or not. I don't necessarily agree with the way we use it, but I don't disagree with him. But one of the things I came across of his was the three principles of safety management. And they're very simple. It's number one, create and maintain, create and maintain an active interest in safety. Mm. Number two, fact finding. And number three, corrective actions based on those facts. Sounds pretty simple. Isn't it? Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we doing it? You know, I take that now. I do a joint committee alignment. And my, my, my latest thing when I work with joint committees is I try and change their whole way of being. I believe joint committees need to be learning teams made up of every level of the organization, management, workers, unions, if there's a union. But they, their purpose is to be a learning team. So actively finding fact mm. and then correcting that fact, not flavor of the day, not poster campaigns, not... Not, oh, well, I guess hand injuries is the big thing this week. No, the fact is on this job site, we don't have a problem with hand injuries. We have a problem with this. Or we have a problem with 10 things, but only three of those are going to cause a serious injury or fatality. So let's, let's not focus down on that. It's, uh, it just goes right back to those three principles. And as a committee or a, a learning team, if you will, my, 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 my belief is their biggest, their biggest, their biggest, opportunity to affect change is to create active interest in safety amongst the workforce. And you do that by not putting up posters saying no job is so important we can't do it safely or everybody has the right to stop work. You do that by stating values you can actually demonstrate. Mm. So if you can't, you've got a poster says safety first. And I hate that term because nobody, no, I've never met anybody who puts safety first. I've never <laughs> seen it. Not stay in business. No. no. Because you've got money, time, production, you've got all these competing values. So you need to have, you know, when it comes to those three things on safety management, uh, that the Heinrichsons in the 1930s that he developed this, I don't know why we threw it out. That's what joint committees should be. But if you look at what a joint committee is tasked to do, I don't know what it's like in Australia or in Western Australia. I don't know what it's like in Perth, but in province by province in Canada, each province has different roles and responsibilities for committees. And most of them are the committee must manage safety. Mm. It's not the committee's job. That's my job. And as a safety practitioner, I shouldn't be on the committee. I should be a resource to the committee. I should be a tool for the committee. But it's not my job. It's not their job to... You know, we must count the, the lagging indicators and we must do the incident investigations and we must do inspections once a month. We, no, that's no. What you must do as a committee is create an active interest amongst your team, demonstrate, walk the talk, show people how to do the things we ask them to do and base it on facts and develop leading indicators based on the operation, not on the play for the day and yesterday's news. So does that make us lazy? Maybe I, I, I might, I'm one of those people, I think I, I come to things, maybe it, it goes back to my, my early years, having to, to kind of, ha- having to fake my way through school with, with a learning disability. I think one of the things that did for me is it made me really appreciate how can I do something simpler? Mm. How can I take something that's hard and make it easy? And, and I guess that looks like laziness. I don't know. I like to think I work smart, not hard, but... Very good. Seven bad habits of safety management. You talked about safety culture being one. What are the other? What what, what are the seven? Well, you know, I originally they had the, the publisher, Taylor and Francis, had originally decided on the title. My my original title was Bleeding Money and the problem with safety management. But they didn't like that because they thought it sounded too economic. So they changed it to the seven uh, bad habits. But then I started getting feedback about there's not there's more than seven. You know, there's more than seven. And then others were like, oh, you're just supposed to be like the seven good habits of a leader or the seven. <laughs> so I dropped. We I had them drop the the. Yeah. I, I'm just exploring in this book. I'm exploring seven bad habits, and, uh, and there's many more. I'm sure. Yeah. But 
these seven I chose because they all interrelate. And as I, I put them in order, I, I rearranged the order of them based on when I started seeing how one impacts the other and how those two impact the third and how the third impacts the fourth and the fourth. Right up, the safety culture is actually the last of the seven because we take all these things. So, so they, the, the, the bad habits that I see, and this is just the world according to Murray, this is, you know, of course, I, it, it, this, the, the book, just to back up for a second, the, the, the book itself is not a how-to book. It's not a, I'm going to fix the world. There's no magic bullets. The book is designed to start conversation amongst mm. the professors. That's all I want this book to do. I, I, want, I want organizations to read it and go, hey, maybe we should rethink the way we do things. I'm not telling them how to do it. Just rethink. I want practitioners to read it and challenge it and go, you know, maybe there is a different way to do this. But most importantly, I want students in, in studying occupational health and safety, I want them to use it as a, as a tool that they can critically start critical critically analyzing what they're being taught because we still teach all seven of these habits mm-hmm. and they're front and seven. So it starts the, the habit, that habit number one is plan, do, check, act. And the very fact that we call that the Deming cycle is just so frustrating for me because like I said, Edward Deming was like, please do not call my plan, do, study, act, plan, do, check, act. That's Japanese. Mine is different. Mine is quality, not safety. It was all, you know, so the book goes into a bit of the history on that and how we use it and how we get into it. I, I define it now as the activity trend, the plan to check act. We plan to have zero incidents. We do rules and regulations, policies and procedures. We check for compliance and then we react or reward that compliance. And then we start all over. And if it doesn't work, we go back to the top. And mm-hmm. so we, we, we explore that and how that looks and different. And, and, and there is a couple alternative methods in there some based on research. One alternative method I introduced, and I probably don't do it justice, is from some very good friends of mine in Ireland who, who are both academics and, and well-experienced also in industry. And then I have a model in there that I put in there. And, and, and that's all. The ideas that I throw out there are mostly, I've, I've been criticized as, you know, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence in the book. Uh, we're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence. But to me, anecdotal evidence is what you get when you take empirical evidence and you take ideas and academic ideas and you put them in practice. And so once your field trials are finished, they stay in practice, that creates anecdotal evidence. That's when you really see if it works. So plan to check act is the first. And, mm-hmm. and then the second one is safety management systems and the way we develop safety management. And I, and I, I separate them out, rules versus risk. Our safety management systems are all based on rules and they should be based on risk. And, and then, you know, it, that's right into the safety management systems of you know, the, 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 how we measure, you know, how we calculate the risk, how we calculate, you know, is it likelihood times probability times frequency or is it frequency? Is it, if you ever want to start a great argument at a conference, ask a group around the table above at the conference. So is it the likelihood of the consequence or is it the likelihood of the energy release? Mm-hmm. And just yeah. sit back and enjoy yourself. <laughs> we'll see some passionate people, passionate people going. So, so that's the, the bad habit two. And then bad habit three and four actually could have been their own. They could have been one habit. And it, one is lagging indicators and the other one's leading. So in lagging indicators, we look at you know, I call it, there's one, one part of that chapter that I call counting crows. And I stumbled across aguary. And I don't think I say that right. And you know what aguary is? It's, 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 it's the foretelling of future based on the flight of birds. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's what zero, target zero is to me. It's aguary. It's counting crows. You know, the lack of anything. A dear, dear friend of mine and, and mentor and, and, and colleague, Alan Quilley, who, who sadly we lost a couple of years ago. But he say that, you know, measuring, measuring success of safety based on no reporting is like measuring health by lack of illness. Mm-hmm. Fitness by lack of, I, I forget how he used to coin that, but he, he did it much better than me. So that's sort of the, the lagging indicator. And then the leading indicator comes in with the, you know, with the notion that when you, when you read OSHA's 
handbook on how to create leading indicators, I laugh because it's all based on lagging indicators. They all talk about creating your leading indicator based on what has or hasn't happened in the past. Well, that's just creating more lagging indicators. Yeah. So we talk about that and we talk about other options there. Is, you know, what if we what if we looked at precursors to serious injury and fatality? And a lot of people are doing that. And I like that concept. And then what if we look at it based on behavior, which brings us to, you know, a bad habit number five, which is behavioral-based safety. And nothing, nothing in the safety world has been implemented more out of context than BPS. People confuse observation schemes like STOP with BBS. And of course, safety practitioners like it because it allows us to look at the worker. Mm-hmm. Unions hate it because they're tired of being blamed for people going home dead. So in, in that chapter, we talk about, you know, really it's about BBS to me is about identifying the organization's behavior. What, what is it that's, that's causing people to make these choices? And why are they limited to these mm-hmm. competing values? So that's bad habit number five. And then we, we, we take that based on behaviors and talk about erosions of standards. And then we couple that back to developing a leading indicator based on precursors to serious injury and fatality. Well, what if we, what if we identify those and then couple them with the erosions of standards that we're seeing, because that's a leadership issue. That's not a worker issue. Mm-hmm. Leadership is are allowing workers are, are creating an environment where they have to erode these standards. What if we, if we align those things and prioritize and not have play based on fact, based on the three principles of safety management from the 30s, which brings us to the joint committee, which is bad habit number four. You know, I, I, I used to do a, I used to do a, a keynote address called put down the donuts. We, we have work to do. And I did it. A, I did it at a national conference one time and I did it for, for a chapter of an organization one time and, and it got mixed reviews. People didn't like the idea that I called, you know, said put down the donuts. But I've been to enough joint committee meetings to know that if there isn't donuts, you know, who's coming, right? <laughs> we, we're about the next poster campaign and the next flavor of the day. So that's a bad habit six, is joint, joint safety committees. And my goal, like I say, now when I work with joint committees, I try to convert them into, into learning teams. And I go back to those Heinrich three principles of creating an active interest in safety, finding fact and, and making plans based on fact, based on operational reality. That's what committees should be doing. So that's what I try and help committees do, while at the same time helping them stay compliant with whatever regulatory body says they also have to be doing inspections and this and that. And you can do that, but let's find let's find a way to do it where it's where it's not just window dressing, where people are seeing results. And then the last one, of course, is safety culture, which we talked about already, and how all of these things impact this notion of safety culture. If only people would do what we tell them to do, then our culture would be euphoric. If only we, no. <laughs> like I said, don't. And, and, and we create, many years ago, myself and a woman named Dr. Angela Fajic wrote a paper on behavioral-based safety and operationalizing it. And we, we came up with what we call the safety management cycle. And it basically, in, in, a, in a quick overview of the safety management cycle, it's what, it's what we do when we push culture is we create, so we say this, we, we create this, this value statement that is going to be our, we're going to share this value because that's our culture. We have a value statement. And then we, we, we put it out there for the people. Well, people do, you know, they go through a very, they go through all these moral things when we give them that. They go through a moral awareness when they hear it. And then they go through, you know, okay, they're going to decide morally, where does this fit for me? So most new and young workers go, well, I like this. This is good for me. I like this company. Seasoned workers like you and me go, let's wait and see. So then what happens is we roll this whole thing out. And here's our values. And here's our culture. And rah, rah, and kumbaya. And we do some soft skills. And whoop, and and you know, understand that I also spent a good part of the latter part of my career teaching leadership training where we would have people high five and on the way out the door at oil companies and, and singing kumbaya and, you know, <laughs> places smell like patchouli oil and away we go. And, and only to find out that it didn't work. Yeah. And the reason it didn't work is because we put them back in this, we, we use these soft skills, but then we put them back in a hard skill environment. 
And so they start doing what we tell them to do. They start practicing what we say they should practice. But they don't see change. They, they, the, the organization fails to respond. This happened in Transocean when Lewis Sr. developed a straight system for colors. You know, you've probably seen the colors stuff it, it, based on Myers-Briggs loosely and based on understand yourself, understand each other, treat people the way they want to be treated. That's all very nice. Uh, but I'll tell you, I, I got in more trouble trying to run that system in, in on a drill ship with an offshore installation manager who was having none of it because he was so morally fatigued. He'd heard it all before. He just wanted to get the job done and get home. Yeah. So when we fail to respond to this culture, this utopia culture we're trying to sell, when it doesn't work, people become morally fatigued and it erodes the trust. People start to get their erosion, erosion of trust. Angela. Patrick, she she used to say, trust is like oxygen. You don't know it's there until it's gone. Oh, that's so good. And and so we we create non-trust. And 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 this this erosion of trust leads to moral fatigue, which leads to moral to to ethical fading. Because now, you know what, I'm not gonna do it so much. Why should I do it? I do all their stuff and Tom doesn't, and he gets the same jacket and the same shirt and the same hat and the same bonus and the you know, and here's Tom. He was the guy at the beginning when I heard this all before, and now I'm becoming Tom. Not that I'm So, and then this creates a half-do environment. Now you got to understand that we keep pushing in the soft skills. We want to make a discretionary efforts. It's part of our culture to keep discretionary efforts. But then we set people up to push them into half-do efforts. And then under plan, do, check, act, the activity trap, we check for compliance. Nobody's getting it. So, okay, let's restate that value. <laughs> when, I, when I used to do safety leadership, they, the company I worked with, whose program I used to deliver, they were getting this feedback from the major oil. They, they taught all the major oil companies at one level or another all around the world. And they started getting feedback from some of their clients saying, well, it's not, it's, it's starting off good, but it's not staying, it's not keeping. So their thing was, well, let's do a refresher. Well, that's the worst thing you can do because now I'm going to restate that value and try and get you to, but now I got a classroom full of not so many eager people. <laughs> and, and now the Murray's are sitting with the Toms, you know, and I heard this crap before. And if we do that too much, what we end up with is moral disengagement. To where, you know what, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to collect my check, I'm going to do as little as possible, I'm going to look out for number one, and I'm going to go home, and that's it. And we create that. That's what this, that's what this whole notion of safety culture creates, it's safety colonization. We are going to morally distress people to the point where they just give up. They'll keep secrets, not unlike colonization in the real world, mm. national colonization. I mean, that's what, in Canada... Colonization drove rituals and beliefs and heroes underground. People didn't stop being who they were. Mm. It, it got horribly eroded. And of course, colonization never ends with a good outcome. And, you know, it's no different in Australia, Papua New Guinea or New Zealand or Ireland mm. many years ago. It, it's just, we, we do it in safety. Yeah. So those are, you know, basically the seven bad habits and they seem to come together and it's, the book is not a magic bullet and mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's just, here's what I've seen. This has been my experience. This is some of what I've learned. Here's some of what other people have learned a little bit. And I don't profess, like I've probably done a whole lot of injustice to a lot of people's ideas because I'm just putting them, when I share them in the book, with permission, I'm sharing the way I see them and, and it may not exactly be right, but that to me is good because what I want the book to do is create conversation. Yeah. I, uh, I wanted uh, to get people talking. That's great, Murray. Book's out in September, is it? September, sometime in September is what I'm told. I've just got the uh, the typesetter, CRC Press, and Taylor Francis is, is publishing the book. And their typesetter has just sent me a first proof back. So. When you and I are done, I'm going to go start going through the first proof and, and see if there's anything that jumps out at me that needs to be changed. And and then, yeah, it goes, it gets in the queue, I guess, for printing. I'm not sure. It's all the folks I'm dealing with are in the UK right now, and I'm in Mexico. So I'm not sure how that, you know, writing a book has been a very interesting process. It's it's one of the, It's been a huge learning curve. It's It's one of the scariest things I think I've ever done. It's 
So when I had to send off that manuscript, I had a deadline to get the manuscript to them. And, and I kept trying to stall it off and stall it off. And finally, I, I said to the, the, the first copy editor who was going to get get it sent to, who would send it out for peer review and that kind of thing. I finally apologized to her saying, you know, I, I just feel like I'm about to step out in public naked. <laughs> and I want to make sure that <laughs> I want to make sure I look good. And it's it's a hard thing. I don't know. It's 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 been a really interesting journey, and I, I and I hope to explore more of it. We'll see how this one does. Excellent. I've really enjoyed. I actually have really enjoyed talking to you today, Murray. It's been absolute pleasure. But for now, time has slipped away from us. Yes, but for sure. I do look forward to speaking to you again. And I'll be honest with you, Murray. I love some of the sayings you've you've said today i'm i'm basically going to steal some of them because they're 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 just like gold my friend yeah well you know some of them may be mine and some of them i might have stolen too but i'll (laughs) i'll i'll I'll, I'll leave you with 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 a thought that i got from dr terry mcsween who wrote a book on safety culture and behavioral based safety ironically but i i used some of his stuff in a paper and i actually mentioned him in the book as well and when i asked him for permission he, he gave me permission to do it in the paper and then i was presenting the paper with, with angela thatchik in reno nevada and he was there and i introduced myself and i said dr mcsween i really want to thank you for for, for allowing me to to use your graph and, and 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 reference you and his comment to me was anything that you see of mine that you think will help save a life take it oh, so i'll leave you with that if there's anything i said that you think can help Someone somehow steal it. I, I, I don't have that big an ego to, to, to worry about it. Hopefully, if we all if we all start borrowing from one another, we can actually figure this thing out that we call safety. I don't know. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Murray. Thank you, Tom. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope that one day to get over to Australia and, and we'll, we'll get to sit down and, and continue the chat. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week.